Welcome back to the Medical Republic. I'm Francine Crimmins. And I'm Felicity Nelson. Today we've got Bianca Nogrady back on the show to bring us some of the updates on the pandemic. And Bianca has been keeping our COVID-19 live blog up to date over the past couple of weeks. And you can keep up to date uh, with this blog by checking it out at any time on themedicalrepublic.com.au. Bianca, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for having me back on. So it's getting a bit quieter out there now. And Bianca, I'm sure you're really appreciating that. Um, there was a time when you weren't leaving the keyboard because there was just so much news rolling in about COVID. Oh, look, when I started this blog, it was insane how much stuff was happening because it was it was just happening so fast. And, you know, every organisation involved in medicine or the politics of medicine or politics was trying to work out what the hell to do and how to cope with this. And the data was flooding in from all around the world and... It was incredible. I've never done anything like this before where something has just been changing so quickly, but the implications of it are so far-reaching and so impactful and even the smallest decision can have such significant consequences in terms of lives lost. So it's it's been quite the ride. So if we look at what's been happening in Australia the last 24 hours or so, something's been happening in South Australia. So after weeks of being quite proud, saying that they have no new cases every single day, they've actually reported one new case today. Uh, What do we know so far about this little resurgence in a state that we thought was uh, COVID-19 free? Well, what is interesting is is definitely looking behind the numbers on these daily case uh, reports. And so that, you know, I, uh, those of you who've been checking the blog regularly will know that every morning now I post an update on what the, the numbers of um, confirmed infections are around Australia. Um, and we're getting to such low numbers now that when there are you know, sometimes it's only one case where there have previously been none, as in the case of South Australia or in WA, where you have 13 cases over two days, suddenly kind of a real peak. It's really interesting to look at, well, what's going on behind that? And so in South Australia, this was actually a woman who had recently returned from the United Kingdom, uh, and she originally flew into Victoria. And I think she did one week of quarantine there. She was tested, but then she was allowed to fly uh, to South Australia for family reasons. Um, And I believe she's still in quarantine. So I think the quarantine, she may actually, no, sorry, she may have encountered um, some people along the way. So I think there's a lot of contact tracing that's going on. But it's most of the new cases that are cropping up around Australia now are um, directly traceable to um, either from people who have returned from overseas or people who have contact with known cases or people who've recently returned from overseas. So, for example, West Australia has just had six new cases um, in the, uh, to 9pm yesterday and they'd had seven new cases the previous day. But the six that have just been reported yesterday were actually from a crew aboard a livestock freighter uh, which had travelled to Perth from Qatar. So those six crew members have uh, since been um, moved to a Perth hotel. They're under quarantine and they're being looked after. Victoria has five new cases to 9pm yesterday. So three of those are return travellers. The worrisome one is there is one community case that is so far unconnected to any known cases. So that's um, a possible case of community transmission, which is still being investigated. Uh, And there was also another case in a nursing home that has previously recorded one case. Um, And, of course, New South Wales um, had some very high-profile student infections yesterday. So two students, one in um, each of two high schools um, in the eastern suburbs, so just two kilometres apart, 
And uh, so both of those schools have been closed. All the students have been sent home and they're undergoing a deep clean, which is actually this kind of term that's being bandied around that no one actually knows what that means or what the evidence is in favour of a deep clean. So that's a whole kind of can of worms. But it's it's really good to look at the, the stories behind these numbers of infections in Australia now because it does really show that um, to a large extent we seem to have a lid on community transmission at least so far, it's, I mean, as I keep seeing, I saw a great reminder and people saying, yay, we've only had one case in the last 24 hours. And someone said, yes, but this whole pandemic started because of one case. So one case is one case too many. And I think until we, you know, have sustained zero cases across the country for long periods of time, um, there's really, unfortunately, no chance to kind of rest on this one. And in other news, the search for a treatment continues for this pandemic. Uh, so the National Institute of Health has finally released the results of its remdesivir trial in Australia. I mean, we had seen this announcement a little bit earlier, but it was very slim on the details front, from what I understand. So what do we now know about this trial? Yes, yeah, so this was one of three remdesivir trials that were being conducted. And there was a, a really messy day where all three of them announced results. One of them actually published their results in The Lancet, and um, which uh, a Chinese study which found basically not much of an impact, maybe an impact in um, moderate to severe cases. Um, and then the National Institute, um, Institutes of Health uh, announced their results by press release, which is highly unconventional, especially for you know the National Institutes of Health. It's, they 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 put out this press release. There was basically no data, there was no charts, there was no tables, there was nothing to interrogate in there. And of course, it was announced in the Oval Office, um, you know, with Fauci saying, "Well, this is now the new standard of care, or um, this was the gold standard against which all other treatments should be measured." Um, and meanwhile, Gilead, which uh, manufactures Remdesivir, which is probably jumping up and down with glee, also put out its own press released data, which was actually um, comparing to uh, a five-day and a 10-day regimen of remdesivir. There was no control group. So yeah, you know, (laughs) not exactly the kind of thing that we should be basing clinical decisions on. But anyway, so now the National Institutes of Health has finally published the full results of this remdesivir trial. Um, There are a lot of caveats about this data. First of all, The primary outcome of the trial was changed midstream, uh, which a lot of um, eagle-eyed kind of experts on the internet picked up and pointed out, like, well, hang on, you don't kind of change horses in the middle of a race. Um, It was terminated early, so because they felt that the results were so spectacular, and you can judge for yourself as to whether they are, that um, it warranted um, premature unblinding. Um, And the other issue as well is that it's, Okay, so this brings us to results, really. We should say the results. So it was basically, um, it was 1,063 adults um, who were hospitalised with COVID-19 and lower respiratory tract involvement. They were randomised either to intravenous remdesivir or placebo for up to 10 days. Um, And the outcome was uh, time to hospital discharge or recovery. And what they found was um, a significantly shorter median recovery time. So it was 11 days um, in the remdesivir group compared to 15 days in the placebo group. So a four-day improvement in time to recovery or hospital discharge. Um, They did look at mortality, but they found, and there was a non-significant trend towards reduced mortality. The thing that's interesting with this is that it suggested there might be a sweet spot of disease severity where remdesivir is most effective. So 
um, they, they classified patients according to dis- disease severity and they found that patients who were who were ventilated or received um, ECMO, there's an extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. I think that's right, but I could be wrong. Um, they found in those patients who were, you know, understandably have quite severe disease, um, the, the treatment remdesivir didn't uh, show any significant gains in um, time to recovery. Um, the patients who benefited most, and they were only the only group who had a significant improvement in time to recovery, were patients who needed supplemental oxygen. So they had reasonably, you know, I guess you'd say moderate to severe disease, but they didn't require ventilation, and they showed the greatest improvements in recovery times. People who had less severe disease didn't show statistically significant improvements. So it may be that, um, you know, people who are obviously less sick don't, don't benefit from it. People who are too sick don't benefit from it. Maybe there is a group for whom this does offer some benefits. But, I mean, 11 days versus 15 days in terms of, um, you know, hospital discharge or recovery, I mean, if it had been, it would have been nice for it to be more spectacular. Um, but it's, you know, it, it's more information um and one thing the authors do point out as well is that you know there's quite substantial mortality in these patients and so they're saying that even a drug like remdesivir by itself is not enough so the authors themselves qualified this by saying remdesivir alone is not the solution here that we really need to look at well they don't say what we need to look at but presumably more than just remdesivir alone so it's yeah it's it's interesting it's definitely doing better than so far any other kind of um, pharmaceutical treatments at least but you know whether it's the you know the kind of um the cat's pajamas in terms of treatments yeah jury's out Mm, that sounds a bit disappointing to be honest um and the other treatment they're looking at for COVID-19 is hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine um where are we at with that well, that just it just keeps digging itself deeper and deeper into the hole. <laughs> the point it almost reached the point of no return, I think, with hydroxychloroquine. So, um, the latest is an international registry-based analysis of data. So, again, observational data, but more than ninety-six thousand people. So, quite a significant number. So, this was basically registry de-identified um, electronic health records from six hundred and seventy-one hospitals on six continents. So, it's a huge registry. Um, and they found that hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine, either by themselves or in combination with um, amacrolide, um, is associated with higher in-hospital mortality and an increased risk of ventricular arrhythmias. And these are not small numbers. So, for example, um, they looked at mortality uh, and they found that hydroxychloroquine um, had a 30 sorry, compared to a no-treatment control group, so patients who were given nothing at all, um, hydroxychloroquine was associated with a 33% higher risk of in-hospital mortality. Um, if you had chloroquine alone, it was a 36% higher risk. If you were taking chloroquine with a macrolide, so something like azithromycin, it was a 37% higher risk. And if you were taking hydroxychloroquine with a macrolide, it was a 45% higher risk compared to no treatment at all. Um, and all four treatment approaches, whether in combination with a macrolide or without, were independently associated with an increased risk of new ventricular arrhythmias during hospitalisation. And this ranged up to a five-fold greater risk of ventricular arrhythmias. So this is not good news for hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine, but 
I mean, it's kind of interesting because there are a number of trials that have either started recruiting or are already well underway looking at hydroxychloroquine around the world. So the publication of this data has understandably caused some concern. Um, and I believe that there are, the WHO has now um, called a halt to either a trial that it was supporting or it's called for that trial to stop. I'm not sure exactly. But in the UK, there is another trial, um, the recovery trial, which is apparently would, would be the largest randomised control trial of hydroxychloroquine. Um, as of yesterday, anyway, they said that they were still going ahead. Um, and their justification for that is that all of the data so far showing harm from hydroxychloroquine has come from observational studies. It's not come from randomised controlled trials. So perhaps they're going to... Um, I mean, obviously they're randomising it, but perhaps they're really going to focus on patient groups that have a low risk of arrhythmias, um, that have low comorbidities, but in which case you're probably automatically selecting a group of patients who are going to do better anyway. So it's it's messy. It's really, really messy. Um, but it's certainly... It, it, the Everything that's kind of been published so far is not looking good for hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine. So a lot of what we're seeing coming in at the moment are quite interesting preprints. They often have a very small number of patients, but they are contributing to helping doctors around the world, uh, particularly where there is a lot of COVID patients, to characterise this virus and how it presents. Uh, Bianca, what are some of the preprints that have caught your eye over the past week? And I mean, we should uh, flag this by saying that these preprints are unpublished papers, so they haven't been peer-reviewed. Uh, just so we keep that in mind when we talk about them. Yeah, and that's a whole other uh, that's a whole other debate about preprints. And I know we've talked about it before on the podcast, but yeah, a lot of data is coming out in these preprint servers, which is basically where people have written up a paper and they can chuck it on this preprint server. It doesn't go through; it's not a journal. It doesn't go through peer review. Um, it does go through a form of peer review in the sense that once it's up there, everybody dives on it and comments on it or tweets about it and tweets their comments about it. So there is a form of peer review that is happening, but um, it's not, I guess, the kind of recognised uh, gold standard of peer review. Anyway, that's a, that's an aside. So uh, one that caught my eye recently was a very small cohort study um, of patients in intensive care. So there was only 23 patients who were admitted to intensive care in the UK but it found that 30% of them were diagnosed with acute clinically significant pulmonary embolism and one died from a massive PE. Um, now, that incidence, 30%, when you compare that to what would normally be the incidence of symptomatic PE in a general medical intensive care unit, that's less than 6%. So it's at least a five-fold um, higher incidence of pulmonary embolism in this small group of patients with um, who were in intensive care with COVID-19. Um, and there was nothing to suggest that these patients were likely to develop pulmonary embolism. The, the authors found that there weren't any significant early differences between the patients who did develop PE and those who didn't. Um, they looked at D-dimer levels, and we've talked about D-dimers before, that D-dimer levels, um, there's growing awareness that D-dimer levels may be a marker of disease severity or a marker of potentially high mortality risk in COVID-19 and severe COVID-19. Um, and again, they found that although the D-dimer tended to rise during that hospitalisation period um, in those who did develop pulmonary embolism, it, it wasn't consistent. So again, very small numbers, you know, it's difficult to kind of draw out sort of 
statistically significant data, but I mean, it, it, it's yet another piece to this very complex puzzle that seems to be COVID-19 and especially severe COVID-19. That's really interesting. So what do you think that's telling us? Is COVID-19 in some people more like a cardiovascular disease or is that sort of quite a rare complication? I, I don't know. I, I mean, I know the idea of there being a strong inflammatory component to COVID-19 um, is getting quite a bit of traction because of uh, findings like this and because of, for example, um, you know, the Kawasaki-like disease in children. Um, it's, I, I don't know. I Unfortunately, this gets is, is very much the limits of my understanding of the kind of mechanisms of these things, but certainly, you know, thrombosis and thromboembolic features seem to play a major role in the kind of morbidity and mortality from severe disease. So I imagine there are some smart cookies who are looking into this and um, I sounded like the president when I said that. We've got some very smart people, very smart people. Um, but yes, there's there's growing there's growing data that's showing the role that pulmonary or that um, that um, venous thromboembolism, pulmonary embolism plays in um, in severe disease. So this is an area of investigation I think would be really interesting to keep an eye on in the coming weeks, months, and years. And you just made a good point there in some of those rare paediatric presentations that are happening, not so much in Australia yet, um, and at least we hope that they don't happen, but with schools going back this week and already a few closing because of COVID-19 cases, as we mentioned, there are a lot of parents on high alert and teachers as well. Do we have any data yet around what proportion of children in Australia are carrying the infection? Well, there is um, a study that's been published in Emergency Medicine Australasia, and this was a screening study done at Melbourne's Royal Children's Hospital. Um, and so they were looking at um, a kind of the cohort of children over, I think it was a four-week period, I can't remember, um, sort of around sort of March, April, and they basically just screened every child who came into the emergency department and to the respiratory department, the, oh, sorry, the respiratory infection clinic. They tested all of them for COVID-19. Um, so I think overall they tested 433 kids and they found that less than 1%, I think it was 0.9%, tested positive for, um, for COVID-19. Um, so only four, four kids from 433 who were tested, which is, I guess, a relatively low incidence. I don't, actually don't know whether that reflects what the adult incidence is in Australia. I don't think we have a similar study yet of adults because we're not t- testing asymptomatic individuals um, there were some studies, which I think we might have talked about last week, that were looking. So, for example, there was a study in um, Milan, which was testing blood donors um, samples to see if, it, but that was that was looking at zero prevalence, whereas I believe this was PCR testing, um, and that was sort of in the four percent to seven percent range. But again, it, it you know it's comparing apples with elephants at this point. This the you know the the studies are so different. They're looking at such different populations that you kind of can't really compare them. But uh, I mean, these four kids who who did test positive, none of them were admitted to hospital um, or showed signs of severe disease. Three were over ten. One was under ten. One of the kids had asthma, but no other co- comorbidities. Um, three of them had presented with headache. Three had sore throat. One had fever. Um, all had had, oh, sorry, three children had recently travelled overseas and all had had recent contact with a confirmed COVID-19 case. So, you know, thankfully, at least in this scenario, it's possible to uh, draw the, you know, connect the dots between where they would have been exposed. I think if we started seeing kind of community transmission 
uh, unexplained community transmission in kids, that would probably be quite alarming. Um, but, yeah, it means grateful for small mercies, I guess, at this point. But, um, but there has also been some um, research which is still at the hypothesis-generating stage of research to try and understand why children seem to be less likely to get COVID-19 and certainly seem to be less likely to get severe symptoms of COVID-19. And some researchers in New York have um, put forward a theory that it's to do with the fact that um, kids have much lower expression of the ACE2 receptor gene in their noses. So uh, we... Um, know what well, we think we know as always that the um, ACE2 receptor actually plays a very important role in COVID-19 infection because it's a receptor that the um, virus the little virus spike interacts with and it's a receptor that it uses to gain access to human cells and so this uh, study was looking at um, they had all these samples of nasal epithelium um, which were being taken as part of a study of nasal, looking at nasal biomarkers for asthma. So they had 305 individuals ranging from four years old to 60 years old, and they were looking at the expression of ACE2, um, ACE2 receptors. And then they, they found that the young children had very low levels or they had the lowest levels of expression of the gene that's coding for the ACE2 receptor. And so they had um, less, basically less of this receptor um, active in their noses, which is, I guess, one of the main points of entry for the, uh, the, the new coronavirus. Um, and so it's, and that expression increases with the increasing age. So it's at this point a correlation rather than causation. It could just be that this is, um, these are two completely unrelated things, but given what we know about the involvement of the ACE2 receptor in uh, allowing um, SARS-CoV-2 to gain access to human cells, it's it's certainly interesting and um, it raises the question then, well, if that's how um, the virus gains access to cells, you know, does this then pave the way for a therapeutic to block that access, which I imagine was being looked at regardless of whether kids have this or not. But um but yeah, it's more interesting information. Mm, that's so intriguing. Um, and everyone's thinking about COVID-19 here in Australia, but there are very few cases on the ground at the moment. Um, what can clinicians do to skill up if they just don't, you know, see any of these patients coming in with this disease? Yeah, well, it's a, it's a happy um, it's a happy problem to have that uh, you know clinicians in Australia who want to understand what they're likely to be facing in a COVID nineteen patient for the large part will not encounter a COVID nineteen patient, which uh, again grateful for small mercies in uh, in this scenario. But you know, if we work on the assumption that we will get subsequent spikes of infection, and it'd be great if we didn't, but we kind of have to assume that that's inevitable. Um, how do you uh, treat a COVID-19 patient when one walks in the door. And happily, the New England Journal of Medicine has created this um, fantastic online COVID-19 treatment simulator. And it's it gives you a range of uh, virtual patients. So, you, for example, there's a, a young woman who comes in with very mild symptoms. There's an older man um, with comorbidities and, there's an, uh, and kind of moderate um, illness. And then there's an old man or older man, again, with very severe disease. And it, the interface has a whole lot of things. It allows you to ask them questions, check their medical history. You can order tests and imaging. You can order treatment. You can consult with specialists. You know, it's got a dashboard of all of their kind of um, their biomarkers, blood pressure, heart rate, all of those sorts of things. 
Um, and the the great thing is is it's quite real. So you ask questions and you sometimes get some quite snarky responses, like when you ask the young woman about has she had experienced any changes in her uh, sense of smell or taste, and she says, well, no, what a funny question to ask. It's like, oh, okay, great. So they're very realistic patients. Um, now, I did actually give it a bit of a spin, and um, it reminded me why I'm a writer and not a doctor, was that uh, I tried to order a patient to be intubated without having actually built the working diagnosis. So the um, the interface reminded me that that was not a good idea. And I believe that Penny Durham, um, TMI's reporter, actually gave it a spin and managed to kill a patient. So um, yes, I think you can all be grateful that we are not on the front line of this particular pandemic. We just write about it. But it's it's really great. It's uh, um, I don't have the link to, uh, to hand, but if you go to the New England Journal of Medicine website, I'm sure there'll be a link there. And obviously there's a link from our blog that takes you through to it. But it's, um, yeah, it's, it is really interesting, particularly if you haven't encountered a patient um, it gives you some sense of what they're going through and, and their symptoms and presentation. And in some happier news, we've seen on Twitter this morning that if you look at any of uh, Donald Trump's tweets, Twitter has now inserted a feature on the site which will monitor um, the spreading of false information. Uh, so, you know, Trump being the regular offender of, as he would say, fake news. Uh, sorry, my Trump impression is terrible. Um, so basically now when he makes one of his many crazy tweets, and let's be honest, it's a lot, uh, anything that looks dodgy uh, will now come up with this little alert which will take users to a curated page that basically describes Trump's remarks as unsubstantiated facts and then it also you know, aggregates all these other tweets from verified journalists and publications that go into greater detail about basically why the president is very, very wrong. (laughs) Well, that's it for the Medical Republic this week. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us. Bianca, how can people get in touch if they want to reach you? Yeah, so if you've got any comments or tips or feedback or anything you'd like to see us cover, then you can send an email to me at bianca at biancanograde.com. Thanks, Bianca. And just a reminder before we go, the Medical Republic is hosting a webinar on Thursday night at 7.30pm Australian Eastern Standard Time. It's all about how to grow your practice during the pandemic and we've got business advisor David Darm presenting. It should be quite a practical evening and GPs can ask questions at the end. So do come along if you're free. To register, go to medicalrepublic.com.au slash category slash webinars. And if you'd like to subscribe to the podcast, you can find us on the website, themedicalrepublic.com.au or Spotify or iTunes. All you need to do is search for The Medical Republic. Thanks for listening.